Welcome to Twill and another COVID-19 law and policy briefing produced by Public Health Law Watch, a George Consortium initiative housed at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you to our co-sponsors, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, Change Lab Solutions, and the APHA Law Search. We're here to provide some expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic, now with special emphasis on the post-election world. I'm Nicholas Terry from India. Indiana University McKinney School of Law. Joining me today are Nicole Huberfeld from Boston University and Sarah Rosenbaum from George Washington University. Well, dear guests, this is a week we always knew would be something of a perfect storm for health law and policy. An election decided, we think, and oral arguments before the Supreme Court in what is now styled California versus Texas, all against the backdrop of an out-of-control pandemic, once again putting our healthcare system under extraordinary pressure. So while trying to be upbeat <laughs> about these various topics, Nicole, why don't we start with you and what's at stake in the California case that we heard the oral arguments on yesterday? Thanks so much, Nick. It's great to be here with you and with Sarah. I think that we can divide this into the major goals of the ACA in th- terms of thinking about what's at stake. So if we remember that the key to the ACA was attempting to achieve near universal coverage, the big issue, of course, if the ACA is eliminated is that mm, somewhere around 18 to 20 million people would lose coverage overall. Uh, Medicaid expansion would disappear and that would be about 12 million lives covered. In addition, there are insurance coverage protections that are key to the ACA. So for example, everybody of course likes to talk about the prohibition on pre-existing condition exclusions. They were quite common before the ACA came into existence. It was not unusual at all for insurers to decide that a person who, for example, had broken their arm had a pre-existing condition. It didn't even necessarily mean that a person who had diabetes or cancer or something else that's a chronic condition would be deemed ill. And so that's why the numbers vary a little bit. And when we decide who or how many people have pre-existing conditions, I know there's a little bit of debate about that, but what's clear is that insurers could reinstate pre-existing condition exclusions. Other protections like guaranteed issue would go away. Lifetime caps on coverage would go away. Uh, Things like 26-year-old people up to age 26 being able to stay on their parents' insurance would disappear. Um, And of course, the health insurance exchanges would disappear in every state except for Massachusetts, which had an exchange before there were exchanges. And that means, too, that people purchasing insurance through the exchanges would lose access to qualified health plans, which provide a rather steady way of understanding what your insurer is providing, in addition to the premiums that are available for people earning 100% to 400% of the federal poverty level. uh, Those premium uh, tax credits make it so that people who don't earn a lot are able to get federal government assistance to purchase private insurance, either individual or small group insurance. In addition, there are benefit changes that would occur. So for example, as of now under the ACA, preventive care cannot be charged a copayment. That would go away. Um, And this, of course, impacts not only things like your regular wellness visit to your doctor, but also things like women's access to contraceptives and the ability to not pay copayments for that kind of care. In addition, things like Medicare would be affected, Medicare Part D, the donut hole, the gap where Medicare didn't pay for drug costs went away.
away under the ACA, that would be reinstated. And then, of course, there are also public health measures that would go away. So the Prevention and Public Health Fund, which, of course, has been the object of some debate, would disappear. And then things like menu labeling and also arguably the emphasis on preventive care that we see in the ACA, the insurance coverage provisions that it does have. Now, of course, non-citizens have not been covered by the ACA, so they wouldn't really be affected too much, except that employer-sponsored insurance coverage is available to both documented and undocumented non-citizens. But what's at stake is, at heart, who gets access to health care because we put payment first when we think about health reform. And of course, that's backwards, but that's how we've gone about it. As this case developed out of the federal district court in Texas and through the Fifth Circuit, and as we watched it in, well, I watched it in total disbelief, doing my well-known impression of a goldfish, barely understanding how this could be a real case. It's distilled down to sort of three issues. First of all, the Article 3 standing issue. Secondly, whether the mandate now zeroed is uh, unconstitutional. And third, the issue of severability. I always try and listen to the oral arguments in these types of cases. And sometimes I think I know what's going on and can decode it. But most of the time I have to wait <laughs> until the end of the chapter when the opinion is, is actually published. And I wondered uh, first again with you, Nicole, whether you have any sense after the oral arguments and the reports about them, uh, whether, whether, you're, whether, you're, whether you are willing to prognosticate. I agree that you can't tell everything that you need to know from listening to oral arguments, but I do have a few takeaways that I would mention. First of all, I was surprised how much time was spent on the question of standing. I didn't expect so much questioning on standing. And I think it's in part because the parties that are claiming standing are over-claiming standing. And so the court in part, I think, was responding to the overreach because they were trying to have the court determine the question of severability at the same time that it's determining standing. And of course, that's the mix of a jurisdictional and a substantive question. And that to me, uh, from what I could tell, didn't play well with any of the justices, really. They were all trying to figure out exactly how many new plaintiffs could come into the federal courts based on this new theory of standing that was being presented. And I found particularly um, evocative Justice Roberts' statement that plaintiffs would be invited to wade around in thousand-page statutes finding ways that they might be injured. I thought that that uh, was a particularly revealing way to describe his skepticism about the claim of standing. However, I think that we need to be careful to separate out individual standing and state standing, and also to remember that the procedural posture of the case is that this is a summary judgment. And so if the court were to say no standing, I think it's pretty clear that there's no standing for the individual plaintiffs. I think it's less clear where the states would stand if they had time to prove what kind of financial claims they could make if the record were better developed. So I don't think it would entirely go away. And I'm not sure that would achieve the court's goal to decide the case based on standing. And the reason that I say that based on the oral arguments is I heard a lot of frustration on the part of the justices that they were listening to another set of ACA oral arguments. They just seemed done with it. And you could hear the court saying, and I shouldn't be saying the court, I should say the justices, things like, well, isn't this what Congress ought to be doing? And why are you asking the court to strike down the entirety of the law when it's clear that severability is our default? 
default when we're evaluating the constitutionality of the statute. And so it seemed to me that there's at least five justices who are on board with the idea of severability. Now, I'm putting everything in front of the constitutional question because I thought there was actually surprisingly little conversation about the constitutionality of the individual mandate now that the penalty is zeroed out. And I think that the justices may see this very differently. And here's where I think we may get a sort of wild set of opinions, because some of the justices seem to signal that they do think that this is now an unconstitutional exercise of congressional authority because there's no money to be gained. But Justice Sotomayor had a line of questioning that I thought was particularly interesting because she wanted to get, I think it was Wall, to explain how it would work if Congress had enacted the law in the first place so that a penalty could appear and disappear depending on the behavior of the people purchasing insurance, basically, and was asking whether that would be a permissible exercise of the taxing power. And Wall basically said yes. And so she was trying to say, look, if Congress ever wanted to reinstate this penalty, if we leave this as part of the statute, then Congress retains that ability. And of course, we know a budget reconciliation bill would be an easier thing to pass. It would be very easy for a Biden administration. Well, I shouldn't say very easy. Nothing is very easy in Congress, but it wouldn't be as hard as substantive legislation for a Biden administration to convince Congress to put a $1 penalty or 5 or 10 or whatever the penalty is going to be. It could be reinstated as easily as it was removed in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. So Sotomayor seemed to be trying to play that through. What does it look like to reinstate the penalty? And shouldn't we leave this as part of the law? Because it seems like Congress may intend to exercise its taxing power going forward. I also thought there was an interesting turn of phrase, which was trying to continue to frame the purchase of insurance as a choice rather than a mandate, a sort of debate amongst the justices as to whether Chief Justice Roberts engaged in what some conservative scholars have called the saving construction of the ACA and what others have begun to call more of a choice architecture. And so I think that there is still, I thought that was revealing in terms of seeing that there's still a debate amongst the justices as to exactly what happened in NFIB. We've spoken multiple times about how unclear NFIB versus Sebelius was and all of its constitutional and factual dimensions. Um, And so I think that some of that ongoing uh, misunderstanding or lack of clarity was revealed as well. Well, That's fantastic analysis. And and although you didn't answer my question about which part of the airplane would need to be missing (laughs) in order for it to fly or not fly, I assume the broccoli dinner. I don't know. Um, Let's turn to to Sarah. Your your tea leaf reading from from yesterday? Well, I I really think it's exactly the same as Nicole. I had had the same favorite line. You know, this is just going to encourage people to roam around in statutes to find things they don't like and concoct an argument. Um, And this feeling um, exactly the the, the tiredness, the frustration um, uh, with having to sit through yet another ACA attack. I did think the other thing that jumped out to me, which is not specifically about the argument itself, but is sort of this, um, um, the whole context for the law, which the court, you know, I think it, I think it, it, it takes the court, took the court aback to have such a juvenile case in front of them at, at several levels. And one was, I could feel that they felt deeply that the plaintiffs do not appreciate the organic nature of legislation. So, you know, if you 
take a picture of what was on Congress's mind in 2010, it was clear that when you're working in theoretical constructs, you need, this was, of course, the big fight between Senator Clinton and Senator Obama in the in the 2008 primaries, do you need a mandate? And one of the big concessions that Obama made to Clinton uh, in, 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 in legislative theory around the, what became the Affordable Care Act was the agreement, you do need a mandate. Everybody was convinced in 2010 that a mandate was needed. And of course, as has been pointed out, the findings that appear bizarrely midway through the law stuck in at Title V, and that's a, that's a whole story in and of itself. Uh, you know, why are the findings in the middle of a thousand-page statute are all geared to couch the statute in the Commerce Clause because they had to regulate um, uh, this, this kind of commercial practice. Um, and now we discover, you know, almost a decade later, that if you give enough subsidies and you make it easy enough to enroll, you don't need a man, you don't need this quote-unquote mandate, which is not really a mandate. Um, uh, and Congress really, and there were so many floor statements in 2017, all we're doing is getting rid of the penalty, which everybody hates. We're giving people more flexibility. You know, we're not taking your insurance away because this is coming off of the being burned in the summer of 2017. And here now, three years later, <laughs> the justices are sitting there burning up valuable time listening to these nutcases, quite frankly, telling you that you got to take a picture of the law in 2010 and it's what they intended in 2010. And 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 it was the kind of argument that, I, that frankly, a first year law student, you know, with, a, with five minutes of constitutional law under his or her belt would construct. And so I think there was this feeling of sort of insult on top of injury. So whether they just cut the whole thing off at the knees on a standing issue, whether they do it on severability, I think they want to make this the last time. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Several times there was that carrot stick right. dichotomy that was raised uh, right. that I thought was interesting. But but Sarah, let's let's be more pessimistic, if we may. Assume Forrest's the worst and that the court strikes down the ACA. When would we know? And would there be some kind of stay involved? Or would there just be a rather large explosion and people would pour out <laughs> into the streets? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I you know, I, I realize that the normal schedule for the court's deliberations is months of, of deliberation followed by, you know, painstaking opinion. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm alone in this. I get the feeling like if they could get this opinion done and out uh, uh, by the time uh, uh, President Biden takes office, they'd be happy. I mean, to send, send him off on his way, knowing that the ACA is OK and getting this out of everybody's hair so that all he has is the vast range of problems. I am blessed they're humans. They know we're in the middle of a COVID pandemic. I mean, I, I don't think they want to add to people's misery any more than, than is necessary. So I'm not looking for a spring 2021 decision. I'm looking for something that's, you know, basically all wrapped up by the time President Biden gives whatever State of the Union message with the justices sitting there looking at him um, uh, virtually or for real. Um, um, and, and the one, I must say, the one tiny problem with a clean 
win for the ACA is that um, it, it, it would be an action forcing event. Uh, you know, if they take, if they deal with the market reforms or if they affect the subsidies in some way, I don't think it's going to happen. But that would have forced everybody around a table. And quite frankly, now, except for COVID, um, I don't see anything that's going to force anybody to the table. Um, and that means that the, the things that President Biden wants to do make insurance more affordable, um, uh, create a public option, give us some stability and some con- better control over, over the price of health care, cost of health care. Uh, he's not he, he might be able to nibble around the edges with things like balanced billing. And I mean, I don't mean to put them down or prescription drug pricing, but not the grand scheme of, as Nicole was saying, better and more affordable insurance. So he'll be really thrown back on his um, administrative powers. And then, of course, I foresee four years of sort of the inverse of what we've been going through, which is that everybody who was a plaintiff for the past four years or an amicus on behalf of a plaintiff is now going to be an amicus on behalf of a defendant. Well, let's let's focus in a little more on the election. Following on from, from those comments, Sarah, the Biden campaign was heavy on campaign promises to preserve the ACA and overturn some of the Trump administration's orders and regulations. Mm-hmm. It was a bit light on new initiatives, apart from perhaps the sort of the, the Biden care public option. Although the subsidy reforms, the subsidy expansions were really quite, quite important. To, to bring them further down. Yeah. Yes. Yes, that would have been, and that's a. We're talking about a trillion dollar package just to do those things. Right. Um. So, but but you're right. I mean, it was not the replacement of the entire system with a single payer. Right. So, Nicole, do you worry that you know beyond the apparent preservation of the ACA, do you worry that the Biden presidency will just sort of resemble Obama's after he lost his Senate majority? Um. Are there are there any pieces of the legislative pie that you think there is a claim for bipartisan um, cooperation? So it's easy to forget that at the beginning of 2020, when we still had a robust field of people vying for the Democratic nomination, there was a really serious conversation about the failures of the ACA. Uh, Everybody was thinking about and taking stock of the ACA at 10. And of course, some of those difficulties arise from the original architecture of the ACA, the fact that, for example, non-citizens were always excluded, right, to the tune of millions of people not being brought into the system. Um, The fact that it really built uh, a scaffolding around an old foundation that made it so that we were still kind of cobbling together the way that we get to near universal coverage, the complexity of that architecture, the fact that people cannot figure out how to navigate healthcare in the United States, the fact that it's still very expensive. None of those problems have gone away. And in fact, they're worse because of COVID, because of the double crisis of health and economic recession. And so I do think that there is still an immediacy. It is eerily like the immediate problem that Obama faced coming in at at the tail of the Great Recession. So I agree with you that there are really strong echoes of what Obama faced, including the fact that Senator McConnell will very likely take the same stance with Biden that he took with Obama, which was cooperate on nothing. Uh, So I do 
have some concerns that we're going to see sort of a redo of all of those dynamics. And when you read the Biden plan about healthcare, it very much depends on the ACA being intact. And it was probably the least innovative or disruptive of all of the plans that were on the table, either before Congress or coming out of candidates for the Democratic nomination. It is very far from uh, Biden and Jayapal's Medicare for all bills. It is nowhere near some of the other plans that would basically phase everybody into single payer coverage at some point. So there's a real spectrum of what existed before we forgot everything because of COVID. And I think that Biden's plan was a pretty clear reflection of how he's always operated as a politician, which is that he's much more of a of a neighbor and much less of a policy wonk. And I think that you see that in his plan, right? The ACA is pretty good. Let's build on it because it's already there because he knows how to build coalitions. That's what he's done in the past when he's compromised because he doesn't have a hard stance on policy. I do think it's important to note, too, with that framing, that the way we talk about healthcare has changed in that there is now an expectation of universal or near universal coverage. And that still exists, too, right? This idea that it is not acceptable for 20 million people to suddenly lose their coverage because the ACA could be, you know, just blown up by the Supreme Court. There is a lot of resistance to that idea. So I do think, and I've written about this in other places, that there's a change in the way we talk about the ACA and the change in the way we expect government to engage, to fill in those gaps, to do something to make sure people have coverage. And you see that reflected in the Biden plan in terms of, you know, as Sarah said, improving the um, tax subsidies on the exchanges, queuing the government subsidies to gold coverage rather than silver coverage. Um, You see it in terms of also making sure that uh, Medicaid expansion, if it continues to be resisted in the states, would be covered by the public option that's been proposed by Biden. I have a hard time seeing a public option get through with McConnell running the Senate. Um, So I think they're going to have to come up with a new plan, frankly, for what to do about the 12 holdout states. It didn't escape my attention that Texas has argued in California versus Texas that Medicaid is a harm. Yes, no, that was the that was the perfect moment in the that that is their standing basis. Sure. That's their standing basis. Right. And so I, I think while we are seeing this disconnect between the people who are making ballot initiatives happen and the desire for Medicaid expansion on the ground, there are politicians who are still just not willing to swim there. And so they're going to have to figure out a new way to make coverage happen. Um, and then there's other things that you see in the Biden plan. Uh, as Sarah mentioned, you know, could we have bipartisanship on tackling surprise billing. Sure. Especially if the ACA is still in place and you can build on the other consumer protections that already exist in the ACA, it wouldn't be that difficult to amend that part of the U.S. code. Um, We could talk about an attempt to modify Medicare Part D, making it so that HHS can negotiate drug prices. Maybe that would be bipartisan, right? Because that was just part of the big compromise that happened when Part D was created to get everybody at the table. But now that everybody's already been at the table, maybe we can modify that, right? So I can see some measures that could occur, but I do worry that there will be a lot of molasses and not a lot of quick forward movement like you would normally see with a new president in the first hundred days of office where you kind of build on that energy and momentum. I do worry that out of the gate, it is going to be slow rather than uh, quick and energetic because of all of the dynamics. So Sarah, leaving the legislative agenda aside and looking at the other level, 
was that the president and his HHS and CMS are going to have in terms of, of leaving lawsuits, in terms of changing policies, changing personnel, as well as the more technical sure. regulatory and waiver pieces. Where would you like to weigh in there as to what you think uh, you'll see a Biden presidency do? Well, uh, going to the the great laundry list, Nicole just just you know ran through. I mean, the the obvious place for him to be bold, uh, and it's amazing. When I worked for President Clinton, this is where he was bold when everything failed. When uh, the Obama administration's plans began to falter after the 2012 decision, this is where they got bold. And and it's you know so the the playbook is there is to is to of course grab the same brass ring that this administration has grabbed but has used to curtail coverage, and that is this strange experimental statute um, in the Social Security Act 1115, and do a couple of things. I mean, one is that there are multiple models that expansion states might pursue. The other thing that an administration can do, which would make it much more attractive, and they could claim the national emergency of COVID, is to suspend what is known as the budget neutrality requirements of 1115, which essentially, although quite frankly, it's been honored in the breach. Um, uh, there are ways around this so-called budget neutrality rule, but really make it clear that people can come in with spending ideas. Number one, the number two, there you know there, uh, uh, so it, it could be more Arkansas where people are allowed to expand by giving folks subsidies into the marketplace. Um, it could be a Medicaid expansion. You could let states start to experiment with the Magi formula, the so-called you know the methods that are used to determine eligibility which would raise the raise the subsidy levels. You could use another waiver authority uh, known as 1332, which is an obscure part of the Affordable Care Act, and allow states to start dreaming big about what they might do with their marketplaces to stabilize their insurance markets, bring down the cost of coverage, and you know project savings that are ambitious enough to give everybody a little bit more running room. So the irony is that on the coverage issue, there are a couple of hooks that that get us pretty far. And, and I think that those may be where the administration spends its time, either states that want to come in. And of course, the Obama administration envisioned states that would come in with 1115 and 1332 waivers together to make some pretty ambitious changes. So this might be an area of um, attention. The other thing that cries out, I mean, because these 12 non-expansion states are just, it's, it's you know, it's, it's the most sinful part of the failing of the ACA. The other thing that I think requires very fast attention, which is not limited to Medicaid, is, is the public charge rule because of the tremendous effect it's had on immigrant communities. Um, whether they simply suspend enforcement and go back to the pre-2019 uh, rule and go back to the Clinton era uh, policies while they rethink uh, public charge, but the, the impact that this has had on high immigrant communities is, is just enormous. So there are things that he can do. And before when I was joking about, you know, facing having to be a Miki on the side of the defendant now is, um, you know, the extent to which some of these changes are opposed. But if it's a state option to come in and ask for liberalization, then that should blunt some of the legal pushback. Some of the moves that the Trump administration has engaged in administratively are illegal. So Planned Parenthood. There's that too. 
too. (laughs) Work requirements are illegal. Block grants are illegal. You know, their interpretation of 1557 is arguably illegal, as lower federal courts are already finding under Bostock, sex means sex. And so you can't say people who are transgender or sexual minorities are not protected by 1557. So some of their regulatory moves, I think, are pretty easily done away with because they were legally questionable to begin with. And they make it so that more people understand that they are protected. And I think to that point, it is also important to note that things like making it so that people know open enrollment is happening, reinvigorating the program, re-expanding a period of open enrollment. As COVID goes on, making it so that there is a special enrollment period that is extended or reopening open enrollment as necessary for people who need to get coverage who miss the open enrollment period that's happening right now. So I do think that there are administrative moves that the Biden administration can take that will reverse the downward trend on insurance coverage pretty quickly because it's amazing what an information can do, right? When when you're well, look at Massachusetts confusion, right? right? When your goal is confusion, and that has been the goal, mm-hmm. when your goal is to make people think that they don't have a right to coverage when they don't have access to care, people think they don't have it. So an information campaign, I think, could really go a long way in addition to immediately getting rid of regulatory moves that were questionable in the first place. Although, of course, the, the timing of those are, are tricky, right? Because there is so much that needs to be sort of pulled down, the, the short-term limited duration, et cetera, et cetera, association health plans, uh, the Title 10. I mean, the list is so long, 1557, as you say. How much time, agency time, do you spend pulling those down as opposed to doing the more constructive things? And I'd still like to know whether Massachusetts can have a drug formula, right? I mean, there's a there's a lot that... that <laughs> what are we all? <laughs> can, I, can I flag one more thing that's going to come up as sort of a, this, uh, its own class of emergency before we end. Uh, uh, so the Affordable Care Act made a pretty basic change in how the federal government funds the network of clinics known as community health centers. It moved the program from being on an annual discretionary spending cycle, which is how most appropriated programs get funded, to a heavily to a program heavily tied to what's called the Community Health Center Fund, which was set up for all kinds of good reasons and for for reasons that are far too stupid and complicated to spend any time on now, the fund has had the opposite effect. It's had the effect of destabilizing the whole health centers program. Um, The fund needs to be rethought, but very importantly, the fund literally ends on December 11. Community health centers today take care of 30 million patients, and the fund represents 70% of all of their grant funding. So it is an enormous part of their operations. Um, I have no idea. COVID testing. Yes, exactly. And I have no idea. Nobody has any idea whether anybody is is, is imagining anything beyond December 11th at this point for the fund. And so how to stabilize that program and get it off of this crazy cycle it's been put on ends up being sort of a second order, but incredibly important sidebar. And, um, you know, getting us for primary care and medically underserved communities, getting us on a more stable footing. So we've pretty much used up our share of the internet for today. Yeah. Um, but we were, to a large extent, brought together around these issues because of our work on the assessing legal responses to COVID-19 report. And you both just authored outstanding uh, chapters with your co-authors um, that, that we thank you so much for. Just very briefly, 20 seconds each, if you like, what would be the 
one, two, or three things that you think a Biden administration should do in the healthcare space with regard to COVID, sort of starting now or starting in, in, in January? I can, I mean, I can answer right away. I think that going back to the 1115 emergency models used for Katrina uh, and other emergencies, if you know, if you can't get Texas to expand for good, let them set up emergency coverage for people because the option now available through the COVID legislation is only for testing. Nicole? I think also it's important to extend the enhanced federal match for Medicaid so that states, as they continue to ride the recession and lose revenue, can continue to not only be funded by the federal government, but be required to stick with the maintenance of effort requirements that come with that so that they can't drop coverage um, and and can't limit benefits in, in ways that would be harmful to the people who are relying on Medicaid the most right now. Um, I also think that it's worth thinking about what CDC can do to force states to deliver the same kind of information across the board so that we can get better information and understand how this is playing out, what it will mean into the future. The hodgepodge of information that we've got, it really doesn't have to be this way. And we shouldn't leave it up to states to decide what kind of demographic information they're collecting as we confront a pandemic. Um, I would add, too, that if Congress can make it happen, because this wouldn't be Biden alone, there would be good cause to think about re-upping the 100% federal spending for Medicaid expansion to see if that can't twist a few holdout states' arms. Yeah. Well, thank you, thank my guests. Both outstanding. Thank you all for listening. Uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to be broadcasting here on Twitter at noon, uh, typically uh, Wednesdays and Thursdays. Uh, but for confirmation, go to at P-H-L-A-W-W-A-T-C-H, at P-H-Law-Watch, or search for hashtag COVID Law Briefing. Show notes will be at www.publichealthlawwatch.com, where you'll also find our assessing legal responses to COVID-19 report. And also the shows are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast at www.twill.com. Uh, the COVID law, nine COVID-19 non policy briefings are produced by Faith Pallet, Soma Brown, and Liz Voiles. We'll see you next time. Wash those hands, wear those masks, <laughs> stay away from people, but most importantly, stay safe. Stay safe. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much.